You know, life is hard. It takes work to find meaning and purpose and joy. And there is so much stigma around struggling as if something's wrong with us if we struggle. Busy Phillips in this episode and in her process does such a beautiful job of being courageous and naming and fearless in the face of all her, her struggles. It feels like she's capable and normal and there's nothing wrong with her. Her courage is absolutely inspiring. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey everybody, my name is Drew Horning and welcome to the show today. Busy Phillips joins us. Busy, welcome. Hi, hi Drew. It is so good to have you. Uh, Busy has done so much professionally in her life. Perhaps you've heard of her. I'm just going to rip off a couple things. She was on the television series Freaks and Geeks. Uh, Dawson Creek, Love Incorporated, ER, uh, the ABC series, ABC series Cougar Town, and you are currently doing an amazing podcast called uh, Busy Phillips is Doing Her Best. You had a show called Busy Tonight, and you're currently working in the Girls 5 Eva, the TV show that um, you're recording now, and one season has already been out. That's on AB. Uh, what is it? NBC? No, Peacock Streaming, right? It's on Peacock Streaming. Yeah, it's NBC Streaming. Yeah, NBC. Busy. So good to have you. And uh, add to all of that, a graduate of the Hoffman process. I know, relatively new graduate of the Hoffman process. How is life post process? I, I just have to share, we were talking before to kind of warm up a little bit, and you're like, oh, God, we should be pushing record. And I said, let's go, let's go. So I love it. Busy, you were so courageous and fearless in your process, and, you know, just unafraid to look at some of the most painful, real, challenging stuff. And as I look at your work, I'm like, wow, you are, you carry that into your work, into your podcast, fearless. That's really kind. Thank you. Sometimes I think in the past, it's been like a result of like faking it until I could make it, you know, like that I have been very fearful at times, but that I've felt this push forward knowing that the good stuff will come if I'm able to at least act fearless. You know what I mean? And I think anyone going into Hoffman, or I imagine probably most of the people that listen to the podcast have been, but maybe not. Maybe people are wondering if it's for them. 
that's a good thing to keep in mind when you're there is that you have to sort of be, well, look, I mean, you're spending all the money and the time, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? You may as well do it, you know, cause then if, if not, you don't want to feel like, well, I didn't really dig into a place where I needed to be. But I also think Drew, I don't know. You can tell me what you think. I feel like all of my years and years and years of therapy leading up to Hoffman were really helpful for me just in terms of being able to like access a lot of stuff. I think that people probably do come in at different places in terms of personal work, right? Yes, for sure. For you, it feels like you did it at the right time and all the therapy beforehand set you up for the work. Yeah. It did. But like, I also felt like, I felt like, and maybe everybody feels like this with their group. Like I felt like we had a pretty fearless group of people too. Ready to dig in. The space was there for it. You know, like we were, I felt supported by you and Nita and Chris and like, you weren't going to let us or me specifically, you weren't going to let me float off into the ether never to return, you know? Yeah, the, the, I think the boundaries act as a really important parts of the work in the sense that people feel held so that they can go even deeper. And it sounds like that's part of what you're talking about. Yeah, I think so. And I think that just the the time that I found myself able to be there and to do the process was, you know, just the exact right time. It was something that I had thought about for many years, had known about for many years, had lots of friends who've gone and known lots of people who've gone. And, and it just was never really the right time. The timing just wasn't right for me. And then, you know, everything kind of just like opened up in this one moment and I was, I was able to go and it felt like it was the exact right time for me to be there, you know, and I'm continuing like post-process. It's not all like, just like everything's fixed. <laughs> this is important. Yeah, this is important. It's not a perfect life post-process. No, it's not. And it's not like a pain-free life post-process or whatever, grief-free. But I think that that tools that we get that I got from the process, the things that I know I can return to. I was saying to Drew right before this, I've had a really intense couple of weeks and I've gone back to shooting my TV show, which brings along with it, like a whole new other set of things. And I realized today, like I need to do a self love walk. Like I need to do some, I need to do some affirmations of, of worthiness and self-love and love for my body because socially, you know, I think we're bombarded all the time with things, but especially if part of your job is having people put costumes on you and rearrange your body in different ways. <laughs> like that is a thing that post-process I was like, felt very free of, of any sort of like body judgment that I had ever had towards myself. And then just like the last couple of days, I felt it sort of like creeping back. It's not that anyone has done anything in particular. It's just the circumstances of my job and life and stuff, you know? And so I think reconnecting to that 
that self-love place is the key for me, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's the key for everyone, but for me, I think that the self-compassion and self-love is everything. You know, that's an idea, but part of what you're saying is that the practices of it are really important for you. Well, yeah, because I had, because I have known the ideas for a long time, (laughs) Like, like we all do, you know, and, and even, I mean, that's, that's why that idea of awareness hell resonated so deeply with me because I mean, so many of us are stuck in that. Yeah. What's your understanding of awareness hell? Well, you know, so frequently I feel like with, with many things that are sort of either repeating patterns or thought patterns or you know, things that come back up again and again, you talk about it in your therapy weekly, even sometimes in the moment you can recognize what's happening and know it to be negative love or fault, you know, a false thing. And yet, and yet you still succumb to it. You still go there. You still return to the anger or the rage or the name calling or body shaming or self-loathing type of things. And then it's even like twice as hard because you're aware of what you're doing and where it even comes from. But for whatever reason, you know, pre-Hoffman, I had no tool to say, okay, here's what we're going to do to try to get rid of this thing, to get this thing out of my brain and system and reroute it into something else. Well, what was the impact on you? You you know those thoughts and you were not able to move them out. Uh, that sounds like not a fortuitous place to be. They keep growing. Well, stuck is like the word. And I and I feel like I know a lot of people who that word really resonates with them too, stuck. Being stuck or being trapped, it's prison. Like, you know, it's the worst place to be. You, you don't want to be stuck or trapped by your own thoughts, feelings, behaviors. You want to be free of, to, because you are free. We are free. We're able to make choices every moment. And those patterns come back, that like dark side comes back and looks at you. And it's real appealing sometimes. Sometimes you got to lean in. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, God, the next day. Yeah, staying, staying vigilant through the practices. You know, Busy, I was also remembering your uh, autobiography you wrote, This Will Only Hurt a Little, this book you wrote. Um, you're so unafraid and... Certainly in your podcast, Busy Phillips is doing her best, and the story of that being a kind of pandemic podcast, but you even still doing it and still being unafraid to go beyond the time-limited podcast, it's like you've kind of writing your own story, writing your own narrative as you go, unafraid to put yourself out there. Do you ever get a vulnerability hangover? Yeah, and the first time I really experienced that in earnest was when the book was coming out. And part of that also was just how much press I had to do for the book. I've been doing this since I was a kid, you know, working in Hollywood. And I made a decision to kind of like name names, I guess. Not like it was anything. I didn't think that it would be 
a big deal, like in talking about people specifically that I've worked with, but that got its own kind of press, you know, and the way that the internet is, it's very difficult to put yourself out there because things do get, you know, extrapolated and made into clickbait. And then the next thing you know, it's just like five headlines of like, your worst hits as a person. <laughs> like, And that was always my biggest fear. And then to have it, and I was preparing myself for it, but then to like actually have it, have it happen in real time was, was a tricky thing to deal with, you know, like the top five shocking things you didn't know about me. And I felt like, well, I wrote a book so that it wouldn't be just five sentences about these really intense traumatic, life-altering events that I went through in my life. And that's, to me, the disservice of the culture that we're in right now, this like constant content culture, which is that it doesn't allow a ton of room for nuance. And that was part of why I chose to, you know, I never had talked publicly about my sexual assault when I was 14 or having an abortion when I was 15, because I didn't want it to be made into a reductive quote unquote story. And then here, here we go. Like I wrote this book so I could really tell it the way I wanted to tell it. And then it got made into a very reductive two line headlines at times. And then the worst part is that like the majority of press for about a week was all just about James Franco, um, who was an actor that I had worked with. And I was like, I wrote this whole book about my experience as a woman in this time, in this industry, and all of the headlines are about a dude that I worked with. Like, the irony was not lost on me. He grabbed some of the attention, even though it was about you. I told a story about his behavior toward me when we were kids on Freaks and Geeks, and it was a story that I had like publicly talked about before both with him at a comedy festival in San Francisco, oh God, like 14, 15 years ago. And then without him on TV, on Watch What Happens Live once I talked about it, I wasn't expecting it to be the attention grabber that it ended up being. But then I wrote the book pre-Me Too, the Me Too movement becoming really, and Harvey Weinstein being put away, thank God, it of course makes sense now, like because James had had some allegations against him that were like new right around the time when my book came out. So, you know, I couldn't have foreseen that happening. Like <laughs> obviously I didn't know I didn't know that wasn't my experience, but people focus on what they want to focus on. And sometimes it's not what you would like them to focus on. What's that like to have so much of your creative professional life. I mean, how do you navigate that busy that what you do, people will interpret differently? There's so much exposure there with a higher profile life. Yeah, well, I think I had come to a point where it was really wearing me down. You know, and it was and it was becoming increasingly more and more difficult for me to even understand what I needed and what boundaries would be good for me. And, you know, that's part of the work that I feel like I was able to focus on and sort of figure out at Hoffman 
because I do think that we are in such an interesting, weird time to be an entertainer. And, you know, there is such value in storytelling and sharing your own experience. And there's such value in those people who choose to, you know, leave themselves open to the (laughs) vulnerability hangovers so that others may recognize themselves, feel less alone, garner some strength from that. However, as one of those people who has done that, there can be a real loss of a judgment's not the right word, but maybe it is like your, your personal knowing what your own boundaries are sort of, do you know what I mean? Like it, in a way it, it can be really appealing, which is why I think you see a lot of people share things sometimes where you're like, whoa, 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 <laughs> that might be too much. Like let's dial it back because I think that people do want to feel seen and heard and less alone. And that is like one of the greatest parts about this time in history that we're able to connect in such broad ways. But you have to be able to understand the personal cost to yourself and those who are are with you and you have to be able to really understand what your boundaries are. And I I think I had kind of not, I just sort of never really even understood what boundaries were. So (laughs) that's, that's number one. Um, But I do think that it was taking, it was taking a toll on me simply because it was just a lot. Like people expect, you know, I felt an expectation on me and I had my own expectations of myself. Hoffman really helped me to sort of identify that like self-care isn't just like taking a bath, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Busy. And, and there's, there's no manual. I mean, it's, it sounds like when you get into this field, you're learning all of what you're just talking about in real time. And I should also add your work and ad- advocacy around uh, being pro-choice and abortion rights. Yeah, reproductive justice. Yeah, reproductive justice. Thank you, Busy. You you're willing to put yourself out there to speak up for what you believe in, and you mentioned it earlier that there are people who are benefiting because you're willing to be out front taking some of the exposure and the hits. That's not easy. And I, and I love that self-care is not just taking a bath. What, for you, what is self-care post-process, whether you do it every day or not, but what are you learning about, about that and what it means for you? Learning how to say no thank you. <laughs> No, thank you. I actually cannot, can't do that. (laughs) I can't. And I'm learning that there's a moment in which my kids need me or where I need some support myself. For me, I'm one of these people that like would power through anything that I had committed to, regardless of what was going on in my personal life or, you know, with my kids or family because I committed to doing it, to being there, and I had to do it. And 
you know, I would say that like, there's a great thing. I don't know if it's in the post process little handbook, or I can't remember where it is about how it's like, it's not, it's not a free pass to be a flake. You know what I mean? But that was always my fear was I didn't want to be one of those people that committed and then backed out. But I have realized that pushing myself too hard and especially because so much of the work in the reproductive justice space, especially now, is really emotionally overwhelming for me. It's really hard for me just because conceptually we're talking about the rights of people being taken, stripped away. It's hard, regardless of the fact that like I'm one of the people whose rights would be hypothetically taken away. I'm like a middle-aged rich white lady, you know what I mean? Like my privilege and my age, like the ship's almost sailed (laughs) and, and, you know, and my inherent privilege probably protects me in many ways. But when you know and see how these laws are affecting the most vulnerable in our country, it is heartbreaking. And I can't separate that. Like that, that is a thing that I can't just turn it, flip a switch and not feel incredibly emotional about. So like, I didn't go last week to the Supreme Court hearing for SBA, even though I was actually technically, I wasn't working that day, but I just knew that it would be really overwhelming for me. I work with Center for Reproductive Rights. And I just thought, well, I think I'm better served for everyone if I'm <laughs> if I just stay home, <laughs> not do that. You know, there will be another. Unfortunately, there will be other times. And then trying to like trying to focus on on things like gratitude and self compassion and those, you know, has been really really helpful. You know, I I want to go back to your comment, and I love that saying no is such an important part of boundaries the just the idea the practice of 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 saying no and also understanding what self-compassion isn't and uh what did you think it was what did you say i thought it was flaky you know i was i was one of those people especially like the moment i arrived at hoffman where i had been burning not just the candle at both ends, but like every bit in between, (laughs) like everything was burned. (laughs) Like it was just burning to the ground. Giving of yourself so much is like selfish. It is a selfish thing. You know, I had to like examine what that was. What was I trying to get? Why was I doing that? What was it? What did I think I was going to get from it? What was it? What was I actually getting from it? One of my classmates said something to me on the very last day, like literally in the 11th hour in our small group. And it was incredibly impactful. And it was about how I was kind of refusing the suggestion that we take a couple days to ourselves post-process. And I was saying like, no, I have to get back to my kids because they need me and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And this classmate said, can I, may I offer something? Um, Cause Drew, you also uh, gave us the, may I offer something, which was incredibly helpful. And I said, you may. And he said, 
is that for your kids or is that for, so that you don't feel guilty about how much time you feel like you've left, you've been gone for? Because do they really care if you come back tonight or tomorrow or the next day? Like you've been gone, you know, it is what it is. And he was speaking from his own personal experience, having a job where he travels and comes back. And I just, in that moment, had this flash of all of the times that I had been traveling for work, hustling, 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 and killed myself to like, exhausted myself to catch the flight with like, I almost could, didn't make the flight and then, and then landed at 1am and so that I could be up at 6am so I could go chaperone the field trip for my kid, but I'm like tired the whole time and grumpy and nobody acknowledges the, what I, you know, the sacrifices I've made and, you know, because they're all still like, everybody's still living their lives, you know? And then, and I come back in thinking like, well, I've become this, I'm in my head done this heroic thing by exhausting myself to get back. And they're like, yeah, so what? So you're back. So let's go. But I'm no good to them because I'm exhausted and didn't give myself a proper break and didn't take a moment post work to reset before I enter in because having kids and a family and life is requires a lot too. So when he said that, I just had this like actual memento style flashback of all the times that I had shown up in what I thought was like, I made it back for the thing. But did I like, was I really there? And what was that about? At what cost? Was I the best parent in those moments? And so self-compassion is not uh, giving yourself a pass or indulgent or blaming others or not taking responsibility it allows you to show up even better and be more present because you've taken care of those things. So what did, what else? Did, let's stay here for a second because this feels, this feels kind of important, like this self-compassion thing. You know, for, for people to drop in to an easily understood and often not practiced aspect of self-compassion. Uh, what did you learn about it in your process or what struck out for you, stuck out for you in terms of the practices of self-compassion and how it supported you? I think that checking in with my daily quad checks have been helping, helpful since post-Hoffman, like post-process, whatever that's been like the single most helpful thing that I've continued to do basically because I think for a lot of people, I don't think I'm unique in this. We have so many things going on. And so being able to figure out, okay, what is it that my intellect is asking of me in this moment? My, what does my body need in this moment? And, and what emotional self is meeting me today? And what is, and where is that coming from? And is there a pattern that I'm tracing this back to, or is it simply that it just needs to be heard? You know, let the emotions need to get out, or separating those parts of myself. Oh, and my spirit, of course, of course, my spirit. 
But separating those parts of myself out and really understanding what they all need and that they can work together and coexist. I mean, that's been such a game changer in terms of being able to be compassionate towards myself. Because frequently, I think I would go to, God, why can't you figure this out? Ugh, just figure it out, busy, you know, about whatever it was. The way that I was feeling about something, something uh, emotionally feeling overwhelmed. And I just didn't have that tool to be able to sit, drop in, get quiet and still and hear the answers because the answers for me are so clear when I just do that thing. That's worth noting. When I do that thing, when I do take the time and listen, then the clarity comes. But but when I don't, it gets all jumbled, doesn't it? It's like, who's talking? Everyone's yelling at each other, yelling, and you can't, a whole cacophony of sounds that don't make sense. That don't make sense. And that like are telling you lots of different things. And then, and then you get to a point where you're like, well, I guess I'll just have this bottle of wine because I just want those people to shut the fuck up inside of me, you know? And I'm not a person who's like, I'm not like you listen, I, people have their own sober journeys and that's great. Like, I'm just saying that I realized that there's a difference between me having a glass of wine with a friend at dinner and me drinking half a bottle of rosé because I'm like, can't figure out what the, all the, guys inside me are trying to tell me. Yeah, of course we want to numb the thing if we can't figure it out, you know, if because it's annoying because your spirit is fight because everybody's fighting inside of you. You know, thank God for the truth, Drew. <laughs> we gotta return to the truth. <laughs> oh, the truth. So good. Yeah, this idea of all aspects coming together, creating a kind of mutual understanding and a shared uh, path forward is part of what we talk about when we talk about the truce. The shared path forward is really important. Even I had a good friend recently, um, last couple of weeks, who had a just was really struggling with a a choice they were trying to make for their kid. It's hard to explain. I don't want to like, you know, give a blow, blow up anyone's spot, but they just had this like thing that they were really struggling with. And it felt really emotional to them. They felt really overwhelmed by it. And I was like, okay, so wait, let's just separate it out. Like intellectually, what do you know? And they told me that intellectually what they know and okay. And emotionally, like you're like, what are you what are you upset about? Why is this making you cry? What is your fear? Is it fear? What is your fear? And then and we separated them out together even. Oh, by the way, I did say before I even did it, I was like, may I offer something that I learned at Hoffman? <laughs> I was like, it's just kind of like a thing that's really helped me. And so, yeah, she did. And then at the end she was like, oh, okay. So yeah, now I get it. Like, <laughs> it was totally fine. Like, had been this thing that for a week and a half she'd been going back and forth on. And then we just did that for five minutes and she talked it through and then was like, Oh, okay. Yeah, I got it. But that's the power of the process. And also like, this is why drew, I called you. I feel very uh, passionately that Hoffman needs to work on some sort of teen process. 
uh, with adolescents. Yeah, adolescents and teens. Say more about why that. I remember that call. What's what's important to you about that? Well, for one thing, like I don't think it's probably for all teens and adolescents, but certainly for some. You know, I think that if if this kind of thing had existed when I was in my late teens, early twenties. I mean, it did exist, by the way, we know this, but I mean, if I had been, if it had been something that I was aware of and that was like sort of available to me as a younger person, I do just feel like I would have had a much easier time through, you know, the next many years of my life. (laughs) And I just feel like there's so much value to it and so much that I think, especially, you know, we, we, you have teens, I have teens, teen, so much value to the practices that Hoffman teaches that I think that teenagers especially could really benefit from it. I think it would just make people able to move through things and with awareness and an awareness and not being stuck in awareness hell, but awareness and being able to sort of practice and continue to, you know, grow at the same time. Yeah, we teach all these skills in school that are for the intellect, but we don't really teach these skills for the rest of our quadrinity about how to navigate life, do we? Yeah, no, we don't. And the emotional components, especially, I mean, like, look, you look at toxic, you know, part of my whole thing is like, first, let's dismantle the gender binary and all that, and the patriarchy and all that. But like, if you look at like toxic masculinity and what these boys are up against, I don't have boys in my home. So I'm not having to deal with parenting them, but I am, but I do deal with the after effects of culturally what the messages boys are still receiving by parents, by teachers, by other authority figures, other kids. And and it's really hard. It's really hard for boys who maybe are more emotional or boys think that they're not supposed to be emotional or they're not allowed to express things in a healthy way. Yeah, I, I think the emotional component of being a kid and a teenager just gets totally lost in our culture. Yeah, it's it's uncharted waters, isn't it? Yeah. But it needs to be addressed because I mean like look, we're having in this time I will say I think that the, you know, mental health stigma is very slowly but being sort of chipped away, you know, and people are more willing to talk about things that Previously, I think they might have held in, but it's still a major hurdle. Kids should be bashing. You know what I mean? We should like like allow safe spaces for kids and adolescents and teens to bash stuff, just like we did in the process. I want to give my kid whatever, one of those bats and one of those special things, pillows. <laughs> I want them to like get it out. Because what do we do? What do we do when we're like adolescents and teens? A lot of times teen girls turn it in on themselves. They start controlling their eating. This is like when EDs show up. I don't know if you've seen like 
the recent studies about like teen girls who are developing tics. Do you know about this? I haven't. No, say more. Oh, it's interesting. But basically from TikTok, and they're having like real neurological episodes, like it's it's showing up, but they're just it's because it's just so highly suggested. And they want to be a part of the community. I wish I had had an outlet for my rage and my anger when I was a teenager. No one told me I could do that. No one told me I, I could have that. Yeah, not only I could do it, but that I was entitled to the passion and the intensity of those feelings and then the expression of them without hurting other people. I think that's part of what you're talking is about is is finding a purposeful, intentional place to express those for the sake of the clarity on the other side. But that's what we're, this is what I'm saying is a totally missing in education and the way that we talk to our kids. The place where kids take it out is sadly mostly on other kids. Kid is struggling with something at home, they go to school, and they're horrible to another child. We know this. This is the pa- these are the patterns, you know, that keep perpetuating. And what if instead we had a way to like help our kids get this stuff out? Like not everyone's going to be able to have that in their home because their parents have different patterns, you know? But I just think by the time you get to high school, you have so much stuff and it would be so helpful to have some of the process available to teenagers so that they can like get it out. I want to do like a gym, like a like a <laughs> like a teen gym where they can bash things safely, scream, get all their rage out so that they don't have to like slam doors and rage at their parents and be mean to other kids. I um I'm smiling because it's like, you know, the cathartic experience and how powerful that can be for adolescents as they try and find their voice. Talk about a, a match made in heaven. You want to find your voice here. Go do these experiences as a way of figuring out what you think, feel, want, need. So good. Busy, can I ask you a question? Because you're, you're so out there in terms of leading and putting your voice in the world. And as I said earlier, like unafraid how has the process helped you continue to do that? What's the cross-section of busy, the courageous voice and actress and the Hoffman process? What do you notice there? Well, I think for me, the continuing to try to find the peace within myself and the love for myself and compassion for myself. That's the trick for me. And it's hard. It's, it is hard being a parent, working, dealing with all of the different things that I have in my life constantly. We all have, you know, trying to like continue to tap into that. Yeah, there's something worth pausing there about it's hard. You said that twice. It's hard. The process didn't make things easier. It's still hard. And yet, if it's still hard, what's different? Well, what's different, I think, 
for me at least, are the tools and that it's a little bit less hard <laughs> in moments. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking like the tools give you a path forward. So it's momentary relief, but it's also here. Here's the way forward as opposed to being kind of lost in the wilderness. Well, that's the thing, right? And it's like that you get to that place where you have the vocabulary for it, like right road, left road, your dark side. You know what I mean? Like even sometimes just naming things help take away some of the power of it. Do you know what I mean? So like previously, (laughs) having not known what a lot of these things were, where they came from, tracing them back through the process. Now I can say, oh, oh, I see. I see what this is. Okay. Oh, interesting. Here it is. Here's this thing that I identified. Compassion is a hard one for me, you know, and that's the thing I'm still working on. Compassion for others and compassion for myself, truly. And I mean, compassion for others when I don't agree with their choices. (laughs) But I have lots of compassion for people who I either don't know or I feel as though they're just in a bad spot. But it is hard when I'm like confronted with somebody that I am close with or I know and I feel as though I would have done things differently. And then, you know, and then I have to have compassion for them. That's like my judgment. And I have to like identify all of those patterns and strip it away and try to get to the core of compassion. That's part of what I hear you saying you got is even naming this thing you know you need more of, naming the practices that help you get it. You talk so eloquently about the value of a quad check. And it's like you've set your sights that even though you know you're not there yet, you know compassion is the way forward. I do know that. I do know that. And continuing, continuing to hold that, the paradox, the two things can be true at the same time and really understanding it on a deep level. Yeah, speaking of not easy, that's how do you hold paradox uh, given that at times it can be like, really? Gotta be kidding me. I don't actually know if I know the answer to that. <laughs> to that. But it's that's to me, it's a practice. That's a practice. Because that's the thing that you have to keep reminding yourself of and coming back to. And for me, like one of the biggest tools is physically writing things down. That's the thing that I've found to be the most helpful. Okay, I'm having a flashback because now I'm remembering in your process, you'd be like, Drew, look at this. And you'd show me pages of notes with arrows and and crossing things out. And I mean, you you are a writer busy and a descriptive, expressive writer. Wow. That's really funny. I mean, it's true, though. It's hard for me. Sometimes I have, you know, my brain goes really, really fast. (laughs) My brain goes really fast. Um, And so for me, writing is a way of slowing it down just because my hand and and not typing. That was really tricky for me at Hoffman was not typing, but actually writing. It was really tricky for me at Hoffman to not type, but rather to have to write longhand because I didn't bring a computer. I can type faster than I could write longhand. And I think that it slowed me down even that much more so that 
the thoughts that were coming, I was getting them out, but I was having more sort of revelatory moments just because the time it was taking from my brain to get to my hand to write it out, you know, the thought could like even shift a little bit by the time I was there. And sometimes you know this because we talked about it sometimes with me because communication speaking is my big way of communicating that I <laughs> that I choose the most. But sometimes I can just talk and talk and talk and you would say, okay, busy, take a breath <laughs> and think about what it is that you want to say <laughs> like I was a little kid. But it's true. I have to do that. You do have such verbal fluency. It just comes rolling off your tongue. Have you always been like that, as you said, like a little kid? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it's why my nickname was Busy. <laughs> and my older kid, Birdie, is very much like the same, very much the same way. And that fits your profession. It does, for the most part. What's the downside? Being able to find stillness is, is difficult, and quieting my brain is difficult. Before the practice, I was in such like a heightened vibrational place that I couldn't have even sat and separated out, you know, emotional, spiritual, and intellect. It was just all a million things screaming in my brain. But the reset of being at Hoffman for a week was incredible, incredibly valuable. I also wish I could uh, live there. Is that weird? <laughs> Do people say that? Just wish I could live there. You know, I think that's sometimes it's like when we give people their phones back. It's like, no, thank you. I don't want it. I felt that way. I was scared of my phone. Oh, my goodness. Drew, that day, that afternoon, the Friday when I went out into the world, ventured out into the world, it was wild. I, I did feel like I was like on drugs. <laughs> colors were brighter. Everything seemed to be like universally, everything just seemed to be lining up, you know, like it was just wild. You worked so hard that week, Busy. What's it like to have this conversation, reflect on your experience and your career in part with this large swath of self-compassion uh, draped over all of it and your process experience? What's that like? You know, I think that for me, the impact on my life and my home life, my kids, the way that I'm relating to my kids and my parents and my sister and my friends, the people who are just like really in it with me every day has really changed, fundamentally changed. And I'm, re I'm so grateful for it because I was not, I wasn't feeling great about how I was handling literally anything <laughs> when I got when I got to the process. And I realized that, you know, I am I've been historically speaking so hard on myself. Just allowing that grace and that ease and allowing myself to slow down everything, slow down my thoughts, slow down my interactions with others, slow it down, which just creates this really beautiful space for for peace and freedom to exist. Busy, beautiful. Thank you very much for this conversation. 
Thanks, Drew. It's so nice to talk to you. It was so good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.